0: Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode, I get to talk with Rick Small, Director of Financial Crimes Program at Truist, Dan Soto, Chief Compliance Officer, Ally Financial, and John Byrne, Executive Vice President, Chairman, AMLRS Advisory Board at AML Right Source. Possessing nearly 150 years of collective anti-financial crime experience in the public and private sectors, Rick, John, and Dan discuss the rise of anti-money laundering and counter-terror finance efforts in the United States, including the U.S. Patriot Act and before, and then what's wrong and what's right with the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020 and the Corporate Transparency Act. Ahead of all three being honored with Lifetime Achievement Awards, At ACAMS's conference in Las Vegas this coming October, Rick, Dan, and John also discuss the current challenges faced by financial institutions and law enforcement, and how those challenges will evolve and need to be faced by a future generation of anti-financial crime leaders in the public and private sectors. I hope you find the podcast informative and that you'll subscribe to Financial Crime Matters, either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go.
1: Did you know you can cut false positives 33% and free up resources to focus on high-risk activities? All you need is predictive analytics. Learn more at niceactimize.com. See how SAS, the leader in analytics, is shaping the future of compliance and anti-financial crime through innovative solutions like AI, machine learning, and intelligent automation. With SAS, financial institutions achieve more than 90% model accuracy and reduce false positives by up to 80%. In a digital world where financial crime is growing fast, learn how SAS can keep you ahead at SAS.com forward slash fraud.
0: So uh, it is a real pleasure for me today to be with, I I don't know, the three wise men of AMLCFT. I thought about this uh, just yesterday. And if we put the cumulative years together that these three have served, in anti-financial crime, in government roles, uh, in association roles. We get close to uh, 150 years, uh, I think. And I'll let them argue over who gets most of those years. I think that helps if I throw in my 17 years when I joined ACAMS. But when I joined ACAMS, these three were already at ACAM. So it's a real pleasure to have them and to have them uh, as we look forward to presenting Lifetime Achievement Awards to each of them in our Vegas conference in October. So welcome, Rick, Dan, and John. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Good morning. I thought what we would do here is give you a chance to, without talking about uh, Model Ts versus Teslas, give you a chance to talk a little bit at first about where the whole industry has come, both in the law enforcement side and the financial institution side, the whole fight against financial crime. It may be helpful to think about specifically what things look like when you first arrived and and a little bit of that. Maybe, Rick,
2: I'll start with you. Well, I'm actually going to pass to John because he actually was in it before either of us were in it and has that great background from the ABA around what was going on. So, John, pass him the buck.
3: Well, what I would say, Kieran, uh, Rick and Dan, I think what this career for all of us, it's all about opportunity, right? And the opportunity came to all of us because this was a brand new focus. So as Rick mentioned, I was at the Bankers Association. At that point, the young lawyer on staff. Now I just park my walker over here on the side. And I was given this issue because nobody else wanted to do it. And the issue basically was very quickly that Congress was beginning to look carefully at laws and regulations that they didn't have on money laundering and related topics, right? And so, as we all know, they passed the Money Laundering Control Act in 86. My role at the time was to work with the bankers and figure out what their obligations were. So early on, it was simply a compliance response. There wasn't the commitment there was today, although they didn't ignore it, but clearly it was just another compliance requirement. And that definitely changed over time. So the key was early on, they looked at something that was going to cost money, time, energy, resources. Much later as we are today, I would argue everybody is, they're bought into the role, the mission and the goal, but it took a while.
2: I would say that it may be a toss up between Dan and me next, but to John's, how he got in, my story is a little bit similar. I was working at the Treasury Department and I got a call from the Federal Reserve from who became my boss saying that they were looking for somebody from the Treasury Department that had some knowledge of the Bank Secrecy Act, but they didn't want to take the number one person from the Treasury Department with that knowledge. So that's why they were calling me. And I ended up at the Federal Reserve, and they also told me that they thought it was going to be a part-time job, so that the notion that, that I was a former prosecutor and had litigation experience was going to be useful for enforcement actions. I could do this, quote-unquote, money laundering bank secrecy act stuff sometime. And then I would do enforcement actions the rest of the time. So that's how I got in. And actually, one of the first things that my boss said to me is, call this guy, John Byrne, at the Bankers Association. He keeps on bothering me all the time about wanting me to come to conferences and talk. Why don't you go meet him? That's actually how I met John. That would have been 1989, I think. And then Dan can tell you how he migrated into this. Dan? I'm going
4: to take us back even further.
2: I was a bank examiner starting in 1981,
4: conducting a BSA examination consisted of filling out an eight and a half by 14, one pager document uh, describing how the bank was doing, mostly on handling cash activities. There was nothing about terrorism, nothing about sanctions. In fact, we had uh, new examiners, new trainees coming in. They had to fill out two pieces of paper, the BSA, eight and a half by 14, and the business continuity, eight and a half by 14. And in those days, we just used whatever the examiner filled out before, and uh, we just kept using it over and over until we ran out of space. Nothing really changed. And it was all about cash and tax evasion at the time. Fast forward to uh, 1998 time frame. Maybe a little bit later, I was at the Fed doing examiner training, and uh, Rick Small was gracious enough to come over and teach all of our Fed examiners about money laundering, financial crimes. And then one day he said, hey, um, how about coming over and joining us? And uh, it was a choice between Basel and uh, working for Rick. I chose Basel. A year later, I pleaded to come into his group. So I was one of his folks that uh, uh, was on the investigations team as a special unit that was created, as Rick said, as part of um, financial crimes within the Fed, and uh, joined him. And we started working on the first ever guidelines for examiners to use in conducting BSA exams.
2: And I'm just going to correct Dan because, you know, I think the old age is kicking into all of us. So it wasn't 1998. It was 1989, 1990.
0: 89, 80, 89.
2: I knew, I knew my
0: numbers were wrong, but thank you for fixing that.
2: That's what happens when you get old.
0: So Dan, I I, I, I seized on one thing and I kind of want to use it as a jumping off point. You've described uh, this eight and a half by 14 document that I guess was the, filled out all the information needed at that time around AML and the due diligence that was going to get done and what that followed the account around that paper. And that was what it was. A, is that right? And B, what turbocharged things? You know, was it BCCI or did it really not happen until 9-11?
4: Well, there were a lot of other changes. As John described the 86 Act and uh, all of a sudden it wasn't just about the predicate offense. It was about where was the money coming from? And that really started the prosecutions around money laundering, as I understand it talking to two other lawyers here on the phone and I'm not. Uh, But that was really for me the jumping off point from it just filling out a piece of paper to actually using the BSA for prosecutions around money laundering.
3: Yeah. So 1985, the chairman of Bank of Boston testified before the House then Banking Committee and was so arrogant to the committee about BSA obligations that it was clear to me even then that things were going to change radically. And to, uh, my earlier point about 86, from 86 to roughly 94, every two years, Congress passed a massive anti-drug bill, which always included some provisions that touched on money laundering. So it definitely began the focus on financial institutions compliance, but also prosecutions. So from 86 to 94 and beyond, obviously, so all before 9-11, there definitely was continued focus on what institutions can do to look at financial footprints that could be indicators of, at that time, drug trafficking was the most serious crime they were focused on, and tax evasion, but drug trafficking.
0: Okay. So as I understand it, and this has been great to get this filled in and correct, uh, as I understand it, then you know, 9-11 happens. And it seems like the industry, law enforcement, worked with limited powers in terms of going after financial flows and transparency around financial flows. 9-11 happens. That's a revolutionary change. And I, I wondered if each of you could kind of think a little bit about what was great, what was right. And I know that you all had a role, to some degree, input into what was adopted in the Patriot Act and after 9-11. But what they got right, well, then we'll take a minute to think about what they got wrong, if such a thing is
2: possible. <laughs> So Karen, I think just to fill in a little bit of a gap there, what John was talking about with Bank of Boston, that's where we really where the regulatory agencies starting kicking in. So you know, to correlate my hiring, where they said I could do BSAML part time and enforcement actions part time, we started doing enforcement actions and at the Federal Reserve, and I would say we were churning out one or two a month on banks that didn't have sufficient. BSA controls. To John's point about legislation not being there yet, so we're doing a lot of it by fiat. So obviously in enforcement actions, we can kind of direct the bank on where they need to be. So that's your time period. You're right. The next major hurdle is 9-11, but that in-between part, we were really ramping up as regulatory agencies on enforcement actions and really trying to get banks to start thinking more holistically about how to have controls in place in this area.
3: Yeah. And you can't forget Rick's involvement in crafting the SAR regulations and that infrastructure in the late 90s, Kieran, because that's obviously a key component even, of course, today. But that was also an area of prime focus for financial institutions. They now had one place to go to file what was before a criminal referral that would go to eight different agencies, all that sort of thing. But Rick is the primary driver of that. And the industry welcomed that both for efficiency purposes and more clarity. So that's all before 9-11 as well.
2: And then we shouldn't forget before 9-11, our Know Your Customer. So that was the next big attempt to promote some regulations that would provide direction, guidance and requirements for banks, as as I just mentioned, to look holistically at the programs, because up until that point, you had the CTRs, you had the suspicious activity reporting, and you had requirements that individual banks were getting to have programs in place through enforcement actions. And we had a lot of guidance out there, but there was nothing that said, holistically, you have to look at how you manage your customers, how you do your risk assessments, things like that. And that was the underpinning of doing the Know Your Customer regulation, which bombed much earlier than than 9-11. But then to your question, Karen, it actually brings it back home. We have a lot of components of that that came out of the Patriot Act and have continued since then. And I think some would argue potentially a little more draconian than our your customer regulation would have been at the time.
0: Yeah, that's a funny, I mean, because I'm a Johnny-come-lately in this, uh, and I kind of start with 9-11 in many ways, or just before 9-11. Uh, I'm aware of all that KYC stuff that got shot down and then adopted that you're referring to with 9-11. It was, got shot down, it was just outrageous violations of privacy that post-9-11 were totally rolled into the law. You know We're kind of looking at 9-11 now, and we're looking at the Patriot Act now, really, and th- that portion of the BSA, and we're about to go into this next phase. Are we successfully addressing what was wrong in the Patriot Act with this next phase of regulation, AMLA, CTA stuff?
4: I did also want to say that leading up to the Patriot Act, uh, and we just discussed about all the underpinnings that we had tried to get through, uh, now we're... Carte blanche, whatever you want, let's get it in place, let's get it done now. And I think for the first time, we just saw such a collaborative effort between the regulators, the private industry, and law enforcement in attacking, for the first time, something that was not discussed often, and that was terrorism. Terrorism uh, in the United States, it was something somewhere else, not in the U.S., And again, I think at that time, and thinking back on it, a lot of great work done because a lot of individuals, a lot of agencies were willing to come together, forget about issues that we had, whether it was privacy, whether it was turf, whatever it might be, we all came together and said, we have to get this done, and it got done quickly. Things that, for example, that we saw coming out of the Patriot Act, not only the outreach, Rick As part of the Fed was great at getting outreach to the rest of the world. Here's what we're doing. Here's what we need to do. But I also thought in the U.S. watching uh, banks in particular get together and create, for example, a database where we could conduct due diligence, uh, working closely with FinCEN and looking at how do we do the sharing of information that will help us look and try to identify where we might have terrorism Terrorist activities and uh, all of the things that were put together, including CIP, were all meant to make it better for banks to understand who their customers were and to help fight and prevent money laundering and terrorism. Uh, And then I'll stop there and say, okay, did it work or did it not work? And maybe Rick, you can talk about it from your side, Uh, John, your thinking, and then what the new laws and regulations have meant.
2: It's interesting, I just left the Fed in the summer of 2001. So it was my first venture into the private sector, and I was at Citigroup. And one of the things that I think worked phenomenally well is a good friend of all of ours, very good friend, Dennis Lormel. I had met Dennis years earlier, and Kieran, you mentioned BCCI, and we can do a whole session on that at some other time. But I'd met Dennis because he was one of the case agents on BCCI. And Dennis had just moved into headquarters, or he may have been there already, but into sort of a different role in the financial crimes area. And so I reached out to Dennis and said, you know, new to the banks, but what can we do? And that led to significant collaboration. Dennis, real quick, Dennis likes to tell the story that Dennis and I were already connected, but my CEO at Citigroup, who had a very strong reputation for getting what he was at the time, called the attorney general and said, we need to be working together. What do we need to do? I got a note from my CEO that I needed to contact this guy, Dennis Lormel. Dennis got a call from, at the time, Bob Mueller was the director of the FBI. Dennis got a call from Bob Mueller who said, call this guy, Rick Small at Citigroup. So it's interesting how that all came together. But that collaboration really worked well. Some of the legislation was great. I'm going to let John talk about something that we all lobby for that we didn't get. And then just as an aside, where I always joke is another good friend of ours, Steph Casella, had been trying to get forfeiture legislation passed for years and had no success. And it just showed up in the Patriot Act and just zipped through with no problem at all.
3: Uh, Steph actually just taught my class last week uh, here at George Mason. And he tells that story that he was over in London and couldn't get back So they asked him to draft up what he could, and he drafted up a bunch of things, sent it over, and everything was included in the Patriot Act. So we could do a whole show, Kieran, just on asset forfeiture. The one thing I'll mention about the Patriot Act, at the Bankers Association at the time, we obviously wanted to do our best to work closely with law enforcement and policymakers. We were told it passed in three weeks. It's going to go with or without us. What did we want? And we said, as an industry, what we wanted is whatever you put in there in requirements, do it by regulation so the industry can comment and cover everybody. While they still haven't done that yet, we said real estate, investment advisors, pawn brokers, if you have a financial footprint, and I still believe this, they should all have similar, not the same obligations. And so some of that happened. Some of that we're still waiting for. But the two provisions that we worked on uh, with industry, strong support were 314A and 314B. And our goal was always to make 314A a two-way street, that we would share information with the government and vice versa. That never happened. It's only a one-way, here's a name, look it up. So that's unfortunate. 314B, it's a better process. Uh, we never wanted it to be mandated, but we wanted banks to be able to share not just information on specifically money laundering related items, but anything adjacent to that. And that's always been our complaint about 314b. We want institutions to feel free to share all sorts of financial crime related issues, uh, cases, that sort of thing, obviously within certain parameters. Uh, but A and B of 314 A and B were, were key components. CIP was something we had had to horse trade. We had to put CIP on the table as something that the industry would do. So I, I still stand by that. It's not the greatest reg, but we had to do that to get some of the other provisions. But all in all, I think we felt that the Patriot Act was done with our consultation, given the horrible times that we were dealing with.
0: Well, this leads to, uh, you know, I'm very aware of the 314A and the 314B provisions. And it almost seems like some of the unfinished business that has been addressed in maybe like a bailing wire and chewing gum kind of way is, you know, the creation of public private partnerships and, you know, talk about in AMLA what kind of industry cooperation there is, what kind of feedback there is from law enforcement. But I, I think we're still looking for that kind of easier flow of information. And maybe it's a chance to talk about what that should look like going forward and maybe how AMLA and this next wave of regulation addresses that or doesn't address that.
2: Okay. It's a great question. And I would say my personal perspective is not sure yet. So national priorities, great idea, most of which I think most of us we're already focused on if it impacted our institution, but also focused on even if it didn't impact our institution because of the greater concern about those types of things. But we don't yet have the regulatory framework on what we're supposed to do with those. And that goes back to John's point about even with the Patriot Act, putting everything in regulation so we had clear understanding of what we are supposed to do. So, you know, just as an aside, a lot of banks now are getting asked questions during examinations. What program have you set up around the national priorities? There's no regulation that's telling us what to do with those yet. But the concept is great. You know, To me, the, the significantly large elephant in the room is beneficial owners. So the notion was to be able to share that information in a different way, to have a centralized collection point. And as you know, some of the regulations aren't out yet, specifically how banks are gonna get access to that data, and the clarifying on what's out, what's in from the existing regulations. And I probably should start with this. Congress's intent on this, for the most part, I think was great. Execution by the government, it has been slow. So I think it's hard yet to really look at the results. And then, you know, I will just add um, one of the things that I know John and I were both very interested in, I'm sure Dan was too, um, around the training of the supervisory agency staff on the BSA and what to do. That to me is critical because we are moving into a more robust, I think, control environment era. But we also, on the on the institution side, want to really be able to execute on a risk-based approach and i don't think we've been able to do that yet so even with new things coming in we haven't been able to walk away from some old things we haven't really been able to yet say i'm going to focus on that because even though this may not be great it's not as significant a risk as this other stuff is and even though we're banks and we make lots of money according to others we have limited resources
0: Dan, thoughts on where we are now with the new regulations?
4: Well, I I still think a a lot of what we keep discussing uh, goes back to fundamentals. And coming out of 9-11, we had new rules, as I think Rick was saying and and John had alluded to, and that is we seem to be more focused on getting the I's dotted and the T's crossed, uh, making sure, for example, that if we're not going to file a SAR, after um, looking at an alert, we're spending just as much time closing that off and tying it up in a bow and saying why we didn't do something. It never gets to law enforcement as we do trying to make sure that all the papers are filled out correctly, all the boxes are filled out correctly, instead of really targeting and working again closely with law enforcement and the regulators as to What really matters? Now, in some cases, successes were, at least I've seen, is that we have taken on the work of human trafficking. And that's something that I think has been really successful for the banking industry. But I still think we spend a lot of resources on things that don't really produce results. And uh, the resources that we use to spend cost a lot of money improving out or sealing off a negative, as opposed to really working on
1: what
0: matters. That's a good point. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but please stay with us.
1: At Fenurgo, we're proud to be the leading provider of client lifecycle management SaaS solutions. Our software orchestrates the client journey from onboarding and KYC through to offboarding, leveraging automation to enable financial institutions to remain compliant in over 120 jurisdictions globally, adapt to incoming regulatory change and thrive by digitally transforming the end-to-end client experience. Fenergo enhances operational efficiencies, delivering a 40% reduction in the cost to serve customers. Our solutions dynamically change all client journeys across financial products delivering a frictionless digital experience. Come and say hello to the team at Stand 631 at the Assembly Las Vegas 2023 or visit fanergo.com.
0: I wondered if uh, I could ask you to be a little bit fanciful in one way, and that is that to think about, you know, is there a regulation that you would put forward that is greatly needed or a regulation that you would you know, dump that is in place now that really is just
2: a a hindrance? It's a great question. I mean, I, you know, Kieran, and I'm confident you've seen this, but the commentary on the latest round on the beneficial owner from several large um, associations was that that regulation should be dumped and start again. I don't disagree with that at all. So in terms of near term, um, it would be wonderful to kind of start the whole process again and understand exactly what the government's thinking around how to execute on the legislation. If there was one thing that that I would change, I don't know if dump is the right word, but currency transaction reporting, the way we do that today, is a significant burden in resources. Um, for not what we all see is a lot of outcome. I mean, we can ask law enforcement and they will give us great stats about how many times the CTR has been engaged in a criminal investigation, but the stats on that starting the investigation are pretty minimal. And so is there a better way to get, not saying that the government shouldn't have that data but is there a better way to get that? That would be a lot easier. So that would be one of my primaries uh, in terms of rethinking.
3: You know, if you go back to the SARS, two things continue to drive me crazy, even though I'm not in an institution anymore. One is that agencies want documentation of why you're not filing a suspicious activity report, which is not required anywhere. It's ridiculous. And it becomes uh, an encouragement to simply over file. It just, it makes no sense from a policy or legal standpoint. And the second one is one I worked on directly when I was at the ABA. SARS first came out, we asked the simple question, once we file, if the particular activity continues and law enforcement either has not acted or there's been no resolution and we still have the customer, it wasn't enough to close the account, but we still have the, what do we do? And we were told rule of thumb, which is a key phrase, every 90 days or so, go back and look. And if the activity is still continuing, you may want to file. That's become a rule. And there's that's not a rule. And that's another example of where our regulatory partners who have a difficult job go into things that Dan mentioned before, sort of a check the box mentality as opposed to why we do this. We do this to get information in the hands of law enforcement. And those are just some examples in the SAR world. So if they could sort of revisit the SAR infrastructure, I think the institutions would clearly benefit, but more importantly, so would law enforcement.
4: Yeah, I I think the thing that I'd like to maybe say, it needs to be looked at again, and that is the threat of making a BSA officer accountable for an entire program that institutions have governance around, but the threat of uh, saying you're uh, legally liable And therefore, anything that becomes an issue, you stand the chance of being prosecuted, banned from banking. That's a very tough one. And um, we see that the responsibility is not just of the BSA officer; it's of the entire institution. And I thought one of the really, at first, maybe strange things, but I thought a good thing that came out of some of the work that FinCEN was doing was around looking at the culture within the institution Uh, As part of uh, an examination, instead of just focusing on, is that BSA officer accountable for every single thing that goes on within their institution and being held legally liable? And that's a tough thing to have to look at every day as you're making decisions about things like Johnson. Do you have to close accounts or not close accounts? File every 90 days. Keep it open. Helping law enforcement keep something open. Versus protecting the assets of the financial institution, having that obligation uh, is very difficult and uh, it's being made tougher when there's the threat of prosecution.
0: One of the things I want to do next is kind of start to look forward a little bit. That would be to say, you know, what kind of things do you see as the challenges for the future, both that you're dealing with now? You know, I know we're all going to be doing this for 60 or 70 more years, but for, uh, you know, that next generation that comes along?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think we are, you know, everybody talks about new technologies and machine learning, artificial intelligence, but I really do think we are at the crossroads of this is the future and the next generation, which is here now, really needs to be focused on how those types of utilities can really make a difference in what we do. But that comes with a recognition from the oversight, whether it be internal auditors, external examiners, Congress, that we all are going to need to look at this in a different way. And we need to get out of, even with the MLA, which, which uh, you know, I, in my opinion was a great step forward. It's still based on what we've done in the past, as opposed to really looking at what the threat is in the future and and how we get at that. One of my thoughts around cash transactions, which I've gotten pushback on, is why aren't we just data dumping our cash transactions to the government? Why aren't they just taking it? I mean, just think about how they could analyze all that data together as opposed to trying to bring together CTR information, which is haphazard at best. And I think that's the same way for other things that we see. Um, I think the other thing I'll I'll just mention real quick is that we are not at a point yet where we have a partnership with the government, with law enforcement on a regular go-forward basis. I have great partnerships. I know all of my colleagues have great partnerships, but we are still very reactive as consolidated government and banks are still very reactive, and we have not been able to get out in front and be proactive, use intelligence information in a way that we can see it and react to it before things happen and really be able to get out in front of stuff. So that's where I'd love to see us go when Dan, John, and I are not doing the same work because we're all in those rocking chairs that we used to joke about others needed to be in 30 years ago.
3: I'd answer this a little differently, Karen. You know, 30, 40 years ago, banks, while they had these obligations, didn't embrace them right away. It took a while for them to recognize. They, think the compliance officers always did, but for the top of the house, and maybe that was 9-11. But now with the fintechs coming in and all these other adjacent FIs, for lack of a better term, uh, there needs to be a better approach to explain to them both the value proposition of compliance in this space and the importance of Rick mentioning of being proactive And part of that is to continue to work with our law enforcement partners from a a reputational standpoint. I get really frustrated when I see attacks uh, on the IRS, attacks on the FBI, attacks on our law enforcement partners. No one's perfect, but the idea that these attacks continue from policymakers, I think we have an obligation as AML representatives to stand up and say, wait, time out. IRSCI is one of the strongest organizations to help with BSA, the FBI does tremendous work in domestic terror, whatever it is. So I think that's something. So two things to do, work closely with the new entries into our world, and secondly, to really help reputationally change some of the mindsets or at least some of the focus that we've seen recently that really is horrific, in in my
0: humble opinion. Dan? Dan?
4: You know, Rick started it off with technology and we continue to to embrace technology, technology, technology. There are still people behind everything, decisions that we have to do. But as I look forward and some of the things we're facing now that will continue to go into the future uh, relate to alternative payment systems, alternative money systems like Bitcoin, et cetera, these uh, other currencies, but also just the whole notion of money laundering versus drug trafficking versus all these other predicate offenses but you know we still struggle in the united states with marijuana related businesses for example getting clarity on from the government from the states on how to handle all of that more importantly to not forget that this is not just a u.s based issue and that it's a global issue and you know i go back to The start of all of this, one of the other key things that obviously came out of 9-11 was the creation of ACAMS and being able to look at ACAMS as a global organization with global efforts by professionals across the world to help us make this a smaller world in trying to ferret out um, not only money laundering, terrorist activities. uh, And then lastly, I would say just within our institutions, we're trying to do a lot more to what I'll call fusion between money laundering, fraud, terrorist activities, cybersecurity, so that we're looking at this holistically within an institution. And we're seeing some of those specialty areas now come together. And the people that are now in those areas, they're very smart. We've got people with different ideas. They're creative. They're Everything from data scientists to coders to investigators, but at the forefront of all of this, I think ACAMS played a great role in helping us make sure that those professionals are well-trained and that we're pulling it all together, and that has to continue.
0: Well, I think I'm going to end on that note. Thanks, Dan, for that shout-out for ACAMS, and it is just a real pleasure to be here with Rick Small, Executive Vice President and Director of Financial Crimes Program at Truist, Dan Soto, Chief Compliance Officer at Ally Financial, and John Byrne, Executive Vice President, Chairman, AMLRS Advisory Board at AML Right Source. So, thank you, the three of you, for being here today, and, and uh, what a pleasure! Good to see you guys, and I look forward to seeing you in Vegas when you will uh, get the much-deserved Lifetime Achievement Award, which can't do justice to all that you've accomplished. Thank you for being here. Thank you,
2: Karen. Thank you. Thanks, Karen.
0: Thanks for listening to my conversation with Rick Small, John Byrne, and Dan Soto. I hope you found the podcast compelling and that you will subscribe to Financial Crime Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.